Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello and welcome to the Run Run Live podcast, episode 4-387. This is Chris, your endurance partner for today's workout. Today we have a chat with Gene Dykes, who is currently knocking down most of the over 70 distance records. And he's found some sort of fountain of youth and just keeps getting faster. And in section one, I'll give you an update on my 100-miler training and, you know, some of the things I've learned. In section two, I'll talk about the aging athlete a little bit. Buddy, the elderly wonder dog, he is hanging in there with me. He goes out for the first two miles of all my trail runs with me. Since I'm going slow now, he hangs with me. And he got five runs in last week. And then he gets back to the house and he sleeps all day. It's beautiful. And sometimes I have to carry him up to, you know, the stairs when, when his back hips don't work so well. I give him a little help. And I don't expect him to jump up into my truck anymore. It's okay. He's done his part. Now it's my turn. He was a good training partner. So I've been training consistently, typically six miles on a Tuesday, 10 miles Wednesday, six miles on Thursday, and then back-to-back -back long runs on the weekends. And it's not a bad cadence. The trails are drying out nicely. The mosquitoes are out, but those can only get me if I stop too long. If I keep moving, they can't get me. And as we get into the summer, the deer flies will show up. And yeah, I'll have to get some of those sticky patches for my hat or something. Uh, because those are real pests. I can't outrun those. And I booked my hotel for my ultramarathon. Uh, it's out near Cleveland. And I got some wonderful news this week. Wonderful, wonderful news. My friends, Dirt Dog and Just Finish, a.k.a. Mike and Kevin, who I've interviewed on this show many times. Well, at least once. <laughs> Way long ago. I've known these guys forever. Uh, they're going to crew and pace for me. And some other folks, too, are stepping up. So I'm putting my pacing team, my crew and pacing team together right now. And both those guys have run this race. So that's a big bonus. So there you go. That's my update. I got a haircut this weekend, actually, on Memorial Day. And the place I usually go was closed for the holiday. So I went to a lower-end clip joint chain that had open stores. And I was a bit afraid when I saw the guy I was getting. I haven't had super high-quality experiences with this chain before, so I was a little leery. But I had this business trip coming up, and I needed to get my hair cleaned up. So there you go. This kid who took me was wearing a wrinkled goth T-shirt that looked rather slept in with a sleeveless black denim vest covered in studs. Looked quite disheveled. And he had this, uh, he had sort of goth tattoos all over him and piercings. So showing my age and my upbringing, I'm thinking, should I really put my gray head in the hands of this uh, kid? Would that be a smart thing to do? Plus, I had just finished reading Katra Corbett's new book. I'm going to interview her. 
And she talks about how she was a goth meth addict before she got into ultra running. But, you know, looking at this kid, I figured he was a little bit overweight, so he's probably too overweight to be an addict, a meth addict. Besides, you know, it's not hard to cut my hair, what's left of it anyhow. You can't really screw it up. And he did a very precise job. He worked me over like I was some important bonsai topiary. Even worked on the crazy old man hairs that stick out of my eyebrows and my ears. So I really need to work on my assumptions, right? Stop profiling people. But you know how it is. We all turn into our parents at some point, don't we? On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Hundred miler training report here from the trenches, from the front lines. So Saturday, I had 30 miles on my schedule, followed by a 15 miler on Sunday. And I was thinking about it all week. I wasn't afraid of it per se, but I was thinking about it. I didn't think it would be too much of a problem. I mean, I'm in decent aerobic shape. I've got no obvious injuries or ailments. I just go slow, enjoy the trails, practice my stuff. No problem. And the last time I trained for an ultra, I remember this early in the training cycle, this 50-miler that I trained for. The schedule I had downloaded called for these back-to-back weekend long runs. And I remember that second day sucked so bad that I changed the plan to just go extra long on one day and rest the second. But this time around, training for a 100 miler, and coach has me doing a bunch of these back-to-back mileage on the weekends. The point, he says, is to learn how to run on tired legs. But it's more than that. The point is to make it suck. The point is to make you miserable and then make you run some more, or walk, or stumble, or whatever, for a long, long time. Some of it is normal volume training to condition the legs, but as I get into the training, I realize it has more to do with just letting go of actual running and coming to grips with surviving. So I had a plan for that 30-miler on Saturday. I'd get up early, around 5 o'clock, pack my cooler with some water, some smoothies, some sundries, set it at the trailhead. I have right on the other side of my garden in my backyard. Run a two-mile warm-up with Buddy, then hit five laps of my normal 10K trail loop with lots of hiking, breaks, whatever else I needed. Piece of cake. Had a plan. Downloaded a few thousand hours of podcast. Made sure I had everything I needed the night before, ready to go. I figured somewhere around five hours would be reasonable. I had things to do in the afternoon. Just because I have these monster-crushing runs doesn't mean I can skip my weekend chores. But, as that lecherous old Scott Robert Burns noted, the best laid plans of mice and men most oft go ugly. When you have these types of failures in otherwise predictable workouts, you spend a lot of time turning them over in your minds. You you try to make sense. You try to find out why. You know, you need to know what's the why. It's the forensic necessity of finding the pattern and making sense. So I didn't eat anything stupid Friday night, and I stayed away from the beer. I was trying to give, you know, give the workout its due. Maybe it was that I spent Friday afternoon going after my accumulated wood pile with my chainsaw. I'm guessing that took something out of me, even though it's not the most strenuous of labor. I hate to think I'm so fragile, but I'm sure that episodic activity took something away from Saturday morning. Maybe it was the weather. The thunderstorms that were supposed to roll through did not. The first real humidity and heat of the new season clung to the house like a warm washcloth. Maybe it was that we had to stay up late to watch the Celtics, the basketball game. This is a curse of being a Boston sports fan, is that there's always somebody in the playoffs. The national audience requires that we, on the East Coast, stay up past our old people bedtimes. And maybe... 
it was that after the game, it was too hot in our bedroom, and I didn't, I didn't sleep well. I probably woke up dehydrated. I slept late, didn't get to the trails until after 7, and I felt terrible from the start. I was physically tired, and I was already hot, and it was humid. This was the first real hot and humid day. I've been getting out in the mornings when it is typically 50s and cold, and the last couple races I've run have been in the cold rain, so I'm not acclimated yet. So I don't know if it was that, but I felt shitty from the start. Dead legs, no energy, very high sweat rate. At the end of my warm-up with Buddy, I dropped him at the house and went out into that first lap. At the end of the first lap, I was soaked, and I had already drunk my way through my entire handheld and half the bladder in my backpack. So I stopped to refill from my cooler, and because of the weather, I was beset by big aggressive mosquitoes. So you can picture me there, dancing around, trying to pour water into my backpack. I was a sight, I'm sure. Some deranged forest god. And not one of the cute furry gods, one of the nasty satyr types. So I felt terrible from the start. Tired, hot, no energy, but I rationalized. I knew I was supposed to be training tired. This was just getting me there faster. I figured it was a good thing. I was already feeling terrible, still had 20 miles to slog through. That's exactly the training I was supposed to be doing, right? In the second lap, I started hiking the hills. I realized I had forgotten to lube my inner thighs. With the humidity, they quickly turned to raw hamburger before I could get back to my aid station. Push through, right? Discomfort, right? Embrace the suck, right? My neck and shoulders got sore. Not cramping, per se, more fatigued and tight, and that was probably a hangover from the chainsaw-ing. The pack hung heavy on my back with sort of a dull, throbbing pain. And by the third lap, I was walking the hills, in addition to walking every 20 minutes, and I was wrecked. You don't want to drag your toes when you're trail running. You'll fall down, which I did. My sweaty body rolled in dirt, and I came up covered in dirt, like some strange woodland confection, but I had to get up and keep moving or the mosquitoes would get me. I got about a mile into the fourth lap and was walking so much I figured I might as well just turn around and walk home. I was broken and exhausted. 20 miles was enough. It took me a while to walk home. The walk of shame. I dragged my cooler into the kitchen I laid a towel down on the floor in the living room next to the dog. I lay on top of it, and I passed out for an hour. No kidding. So I reported in, and Coach, he yelled at me. He said, hurry up and get acclimated. This is 100-miler. It ain't no joke, he said. No kidding, Coach. So luckily the cold front rolled through, and I was able to knock out the 15 miles on Sunday with relative ease and vigor. So I thought this training was going to be lots of long, lovely, slow runs in the forest. And now I see it as more than that. It is some sort of ultra-running hazing ritual that I have to get through. It is designed to break me, or at least change the way that I think about distance and time. So let's review the new things that I am learning here. It forces you to look at time differently. I have stuff to do, and spending seven or eight or nine hours in a training run every Saturday makes me anxious for all those other things I need to do. For these runs, I need to learn how to stop worrying about when I'm going to be done and to treat them like open-ended, fairly endless tasks. I have to compress time to learn how to be in the moment for hours on end and let the actual starts and ends slip away into just being. And there's a fair amount of boredom in these long runs. After a few hours of running 10k laps in the forest, it gets boring. I'll have to figure out how to distract myself. I tried a bunch of podcasts, but frankly, they are just not that interesting after a while. Ha! Maybe it's time to learn a language or listen to some audiobooks. And another thing is the isolation, the loneliness. One of the big reasons I run is the social and the community aspect. 
The dog, he's too old to go along with me anymore. He's only good for two miles. When I get out more than ten miles, no one in my club wants to go with me. (laughs) I'll have to investigate upgrading my buddy list to a new community of ultra-friends so I can avoid this social isolation over the summer. Another symptom is I'm super hungry. You might say hangry all the time. And I've managed to gain weight since the marathon. And I'm not going to worry about it, but I feel a bit possessed by demons. And then there is the constant sleepiness. I am so sleepy. I get to about 2 in the afternoon and I want to nap. So like I said, I traveled this week and experimented with throwing a bit of jet lag and sleep deprivation on top of that. I mean, what could go wrong? (laughs) When I get into these super long distances, it's just not the same running. I have to figure out how to slow it down from the start. I have to figure out how to spread my available energy over the distance. Not to make it easy or comfortable. No, just to make it more consistent and predictable. Because at the end of the day, it's going to be a slog. It's going to be a trudge. I can't make it not a trudge. There's no training that is going to make me jump around and yell, Wee! when I'm into that seventh hour of trail work. It's about learning to live with the trudge. It's about finding that trudge zone you can live with. Embrace the trudge. So I've got 35 and 20 on the calendar for this weekend. That'll get me close to 80 miles for the week. Embrace the suck. And now for today's featured interview. So um, give me the 200 words on who you are and what you do and and what we're talking about today. You're a famous guy now. Well, uh, I guess I should ask uh, what brought me to your attention. I kind of thought since you were in New England that it might have been my Boston performance. However, I should warn you that I'm trying to purge my memory banks of anything about that race. Running is supposed to be fun, and and I've had fun in adverse conditions, but that weather was just too over-the-top awful. Yeah, it was kind of fun to be done. (laughs) (laughs) No, not even that, because I knew once I was done, I had that five, ten-minute walk to the bus, and I knew I would go hypothermic, and it certainly happened. No, that was a challenge, and the people I've been talking to, Gene, I've run the race 20 times, right? This is, that mm-hmm. was my 20th this year. And one of the things you always see when you get in the high miles on most days is you see a lot of people walking, right? From like Heartbreak Hill in, you pass a lot of dead mm-hmm. soldiers trudging along. And right. I don't know about you, but we didn't see any of that this year because as soon as you started walking, you were off the course. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Uh, but I never looked up to notice such things. I just kept my uh, eyes staring about six feet in front of my shoes and just kept clomping away, hoping always that the next time I looked up, the finish line would be there. <laughs> I'll do you one better. I, I scavenged a uh, poncho from the side of the road about 13 miles, 14, 15, somewhere right before Newton Lower Falls. And so I was looking out a, like a nine-inch oval for the second half of the race and <laughs> didn't really feel like looking around any more than that. Well, unfortunately, I sort of had the opposite experience. I mean, like you, you know, I spent hours agonizing until the start of the race what I would wear. And it turns out I'm pretty sure I nailed it. You know, it was just the perfect gear, and I think I would have enjoyed the race. But these rain pants, which I thought I had checked out, were chafing my thighs something awful. And I had to ditch them at mile six. And, uh, well, that put me under the line of comfort. And just as the next couple miles went by, my legs just... Really, I couldn't feel them. It was like watching disembodied legs running, and it was terrible. If I tried to tell them to speed up, they wouldn't. But conversely, they were probably sending messages to my brain to slow the heck down, and uh, the messages weren't getting through. So it was strange, definitely strange. I had the same same experience. I bought a pair of shorts at the expo, right? Another one of those things you're supposed to learn after doing a number of marathons, Mm -hmm. not to wear new gear, right? And so I was actually shredding my inner thighs, and I didn't know it until I finished because I couldn't feel it. It was just numbed out. Mm. I think a lot of people got that. But anyhow, don't you own a bunch of world records and U.S. records and age group records, Gene? Isn't that why we're talking? Well, I I guess it would be a little naive to think you were just talking to me because I'm just a guy who enjoys running. Uh, (laughs) I guess they're a dime a dozen. (laughs) But that's... 
first and foremost, what I consider myself is somebody just having a blast every year, uh, picking and choosing races. That's almost as fun as, as running them. But uh, this year has been really good. The last couple of years, my major goals were all about big ultras. I was getting late in my age group, and really the, the records and championships in the 65 to 69 group are, are formidable. For some reason, it really yeah. falls off at age 70. So I had that on my radar. And now that I've turned 70, well, I've turned my attention to uh, national championships and age group records. I've raced every single weekend since my birthday. That's been uh, seven weekends now, and things are going pretty well. Just before turning 70, I won a couple national championships. And just to show you how much I love running, one of them was on a 3K indoor track, and the other yeah. national championship was 100-mile trail. Yeah. And I enjoy everything in between and further. Yeah. So, uh, so you got a 3K championship record at a 100-mile championship record uh, in, in two different weekends? No, not records. Is that what you were saying? National championships. You know, no, I won national the race. Championships. National okay. championships. Oh, yeah. you won them. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. Yeah. The official USATF national championship races. Um, since I've turned 70, yeah, I've set six USATF national age group records. Uh, I've added one more national championship. <laughs> Two age group wins at major marathons, an age group course record at Boston, and uh, a world single age 70 marathon record uh, at Rotterdam to kick it off. That was four days after yeah. my birthday. So all of that was uh, in the last seven weeks. It's been a good run. Yeah. So is your theory that there's going to be diminishing returns as you get into the next five-year age bracket? So you got to harvest all those now? Well, you never know who's going to come up. I mean, to a lot of people... I was a big surprise bursting on the scene because I didn't uh, attend these national uh, things much, except in trails. Nobody pays attention to trails. It's it's roads where all the attention goes. So uh, I guess I'll keep my attention on them as long as I'm competitive. But uh, I have the most fun running ultra trails. I mean, mean, what's not to like beating yourself to a pulp, (laughs) all that good stuff? Yeah, I'm with you on that. I find it much more forgiving and actually a great uh, way to build base. And it's really much better for Mm -hmm. your head as well. I think a lot of road racing, too much road racing or too much road training makes you really fragile and sort of one-dimensional. But Mm -hmm. the the trail running keeps you fit and healthy. Well, I think uh, an easy example would be how much time do you think about spending your your next 10K? How much time do you think spending about that? And your next 100-miler, how much time do you think about that? I'll bet the answer there is pretty easy. Well, right now I'm thinking a lot about my next 100-miler. Right. As I'm saying, you'll think about that a lot. You won't think much about your next 10K. So that's what occupies your mind is these big trail races. So what did you run at Rotterdam? That's the fastest one, right? That was my uh, fastest marathon uh, ever. Uh, I first ran my first marathon 12 years ago, New York City, and uh, when I was 58, that would have been 2006. And I've improved my marathon time uh, 12 times now. That was my 12th marathon PR. And uh, I finally got it under three hours, 257.48. Brilliant. That's brilliant. So for the last three years, I've used Ed Whitlock's single-age record of, uh, of three hours and 23 seconds or so as a goal for my training. It just made my training so much fun to have that single goal there. I said, well, maybe I'll try and take out that single-age record. I should point out to your listeners, this is not the age group record. 70 to 74 because Ed Whitlock also owns that and he ran it when he was 73 and that's 254 so I've got three more minutes to chop off to take that down there you go yeah I remember him being um, interviewed before he passed and his training was something like get up every day and run 20 miles it was really um, yeah kind of stoic well we couldn't be more different that's for sure uh, more than one way to skin a cat yeah I do the big base building in the off season. I train real hard with a, a variety of workouts. But uh, yeah, and find you, out what and, works and, for you. And you keep getting faster. I love that. It makes me think how yeah, much fact, of what, how much of what, when we start aging, how much of it is in our heads and how much of it is reality, right? Yeah. I can't explain it. This year, uh, I've improved year over year more this year than than any year. I mean, I've had oh a dozen dozen personal records at all kinds of distances just in the last 12 months. Yeah. And uh by huge margins. So I do you know. think the question is are are you just an outlier, right? Are you just a special guy? And there's probably no black or white answer to this, right? It's probably a little bit of this, a little bit of that, or is it because you think you can, right? Well, you're right. It's 
undoubtedly a little of both. I have friends who have been running and racing with me since I started running 14 years ago, and and they haven't improved one iota. It doesn't seem to matter how much they run. They're just the same. So there's got to be some genetic component to it. There's nothing wrong with that. You can, as long as you're having fun, you know, that's great. But for me, I enjoy running most when I'm beating my fiercest competitor. And that would be the previous year's me. Every year, I want to go a little bit further, a little bit faster, or do more races than I did the previous year. And it doesn't take much. Each year, I just do a little more each year. And and it's just amazing. After two or three years, you look back and think, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you've got an interesting profile in that you were you were a runner when you were a kid, right? You were a track runner. And mm-hmm. and then, then I think you basically took a, a pretty long break until you got into your 50s. Um, were you still super active? I mean, you weren't an overweight guy sitting on the couch smoking cigarettes. No, no, uh, but no turnaround uh, story there. No. Well, there's, there's sort of a reason why I had that long layoff. I think, yes, I've always been active, but I concentrated on things I was really good at, stands to reason. The two sports I was really good at were golf and bowling, which aren't aren't uh, popularly thought of as, as aerobic sports, but there's a lot more being in shape for those than you might think. But mainly, you know, I thought I was a hot shot in track in high school, and I went to college, and I was totally blown off the track. I mean, you know, I'm getting lapped in two-mile races and stuff. It was annoying. So I had it firmly entrenched in my mind that I am at best a mediocre runner, and so I didn't think about that. I did jog uh, now and then, frequently being in shape, frequently not being in shape, but I I always considered myself a runner, even though I was just a jogger. So I think that's important to to do if thinking you want to be a good runner later in life isn't to avoid running, but just not to do a burnout. Yeah, yeah. Geez, I was the same way, right? So I didn't pick it up again until I was in my mid-30s, but I ran in high school too, right? And I was, same thing, I was always sort of mediocre mid-pack runner. But there's a certain mm-hmm. thing you bring with you from having done it at an earlier age. You kind of know how to run, right? You know the mechanics of it, and you know that a six- or a seven-minute mile is not something far outside your ability. It's doable, right? Whereas people coming into the sport never having done it before, they're like, oh, you know, I can't run faster than a 30-minute a 5K. And I think a lot of that's in their heads just because they've never experienced that at a, at a different level. Right. So I think it gives you a a different set point that you're starting from, if that makes any sense. Well, there's uh, another important lesson that people getting into or returning to run need to know. It's sort of the same lesson. I asked my mom once, I said, you know, every year time seems to go faster and faster. Does that ever change? She said, nope, gets faster and faster every year. And it's the same thing with running. I think beginners need to learn the lesson that the worst pain is out of shape pain. And yep. the faster you get, the easier it is. I mean, so that should be highly motivated. And it's important for people who maybe are mediocre runners now who think, well, gee, if I had to run a, a sub three hour marathon, I would have to absolutely kill myself out there and I wouldn't be able to stand the pain. But that isn't the way it is. Of my 12 marathon PRs and my PR at Rotterdam uh, was by about six or seven minutes, easiest PR marathon I ever ran. Once you are in really good shape, it's the training that's hard. It isn't the racing that's hard. Run, racing, that is, boy, it's a, it's a lot of fun when you're in really good shape. Yep, you're absolutely correct. You do the training so that you can enjoy the racing in that, especially when you drop into a sort of a flow state in the race. I always love that, right, where it just feels like you're floating yeah. with the effort. Yeah, it's beautiful. But the other thing people don't realize, especially with the longer distances, I think, is that it takes a good 18 months to get that base back to where it you have something to play with now, right? Whereas people are looking at, well, if I run for 30 days, I'm going to be a runner. Probably not. Right? <laughs> it takes a little bit longer for you to get that pace that allows you, gives you the tools to do something better. That might be. Uh, thinking back on it, I said I started running again about 14 years ago. That was because I had to take a six-year layoff from even jogging because of an injury. And it was 18 months to two years before I did my first races. So uh, I used that time to kind of build up to where it would be reasonably fun. Just changing topics a little bit, you do a lot of racing. You've been racing every weekend. Um, Most people wouldn't do that, right? They do some sort of recovery in there. But maybe I I need to switch to your coach because my coach would never let me do that. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, so do you like do you I like my head, all, all I think my coach beats his head against the wall a lot when I do these yeah. things, but to <laughs> use uh, the, the alters and that sort of thing as sort of like a base building exercise to sort of position you to to run those faster shorter races like the marathon. Well, I used to think I did well in road racing despite the big ultras and uh my coach doesn't uh, coach me on ultras at all. He's I hired him strictly for marathon training and that's all we do. If I'm not racing, if I'm not tapering or recovering from a race, all my workouts are geared on uh, improving my marathon performance. So I used to think I was maybe good despite that, but now I'm thinking maybe there must be something to it uh because uh, I don't know of anybody who does what I do. I mean, during the training for Rotterdam, I ran a hundred miler. That was within the right. three months before the big marathon. And I thought nothing of going out and doing a hundred mile trail race. Yeah. Well, I don't know if your listeners know, uh, I mean, to show you how totally crazy I am about some of these. Yeah. And it's because I tried to outdo myself the previous year that last year I had to run three 200 mile races to up the ante over the over the previous year. Well, I guess one 200-miler would have done it, but heck, if you're going to do one, you might as well do three of them, right? Yeah. And those were such totally awesome races. I just can't wait to do one of them again. Well, actually, the race director is thinking about making a 500-mile race for next year. So uh, will she do it? I don't know. Will I enter? I don't know. Will I finish if I enter? That's an even better question. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, that's miles got a... long way to run. That's got to be almost a week worth of running. Um, so you got to be well, sleeping in there days. somewhere. Yeah. yeah. Well, in a 200-miler, I'll sleep about six hours. Okay. You run it until you start weaving all over the trail at night. And you take an hour and a half nap, and that resets you enough to get to dawn. And then you don't feel sleepy during the day. That's just the way your uh, rhythms work. But night comes along again, and then you have to keep going until you have to take another hour and a half nap. and and just keep going. And it isn't the mileage that's a problem. For those considering ultras, you think, oh, I tried running a, a 50K once and it was awful. But once you've reached 30, 40 miles, it doesn't get much worse than that. You just slow down a little. Uh, you hit the wall basically early on in the race. And then you run on fat and what you're eating. And it doesn't get worse than that. You just keep on going within uh, what you're able to metabolize that way. Yeah. So uh, 200 miles, it's mileage isn't a problem. I could have just kept on running for another couple of days, but boy, the sleep deprivation is, is really awful. But uh, yeah, part of the appeal, I guess. Yeah. So do you think it's an advantage to you having taken those middle years sort of off that you didn't sort of wear out your, your joints and your tendons racing hard in your 20s and 30s? Well, I think the answer to that is all you have to do probably is run down the list of people who have won Boston, New York, Chicago, London, all those races and say, where are they now? And yeah. except for uh, Ron Benoit Samuelson, I, don't, I can't name a person who's a half-decent runner who was really good back when we were kids. It just doesn't yeah, they're not, seem to they're, be in the curve. They're not competing. Yeah, they're not competing anymore. Yeah. Although, uh, you know, there's still a lot of them are still running, like Jeff Smith and, and Billy Rogers are still running. But they're, yeah, some they're, of them are they're not good. competing. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I there's a book I in there there's somewhere. Some truth uh, to that. We should, yeah, we should collaborate on a book where are, titled, Where Are They Now? Yeah. There, but there's something because if you look at this is new, right, Gene? This is new. 20 years ago, people didn't do what you're doing or even what I'm doing when I'm running late into my 50s. So it's sort of uncharted frontier, right? To be, to mm -hmm. be competing at a decent level this late in life, right? So it's interesting. Well, we are actually write, writing a book, right? Mm. <laughs> it might be. I suppose that uh, one of my advantages is I still don't feel old. <laughs> well, I do take naps now and then, but then I forget what I went into a room for. But uh, <laughs> but uh, when I'm out there running, <laughs> I don't feel old. It just doesn't occur to me that I should be slowing down, I guess. Uh, yeah. So that helps. Uh, if you feel young, yeah, go for it. Yeah. Yeah, uh, so that would love, that would love. always be my greatest joy is having somebody saying, "Man, I I saw how much you've enjoyed running since you turned uh, sixty or so, and uh, I think I'll do that." I I just thought I'd have to give up on things like that when I get old, but no, it's just right. I'm, I'm just having a total blast. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's the calculus, right? That's the secret sauce that we have to figure out and pass on to people um, is how to keep that going. 50, 60, 70, 80, right? So it's still fun. Mm -hmm. You've been doing this for 14 years now? 
What have you learned? What are the top three things that that you've learned from returning to running and this journey that you're on? Well, I'm tempted to make number one, number one, number two, and number three because it's so important. It isn't so important if you want to have fun, but if you want to compete at the highest level, you have to hire a coach. For the first uh, seven years or so after my first marathon, I coached myself. I had an idiot for a coach. And uh, I thought I was topping out. I thought I was getting old. I had a real disappointing marathon at Toronto. And I seemed to me such a total waste of money to hire a coach. But I decided to give a coach a five-month trial, see what would happen. And in five months, I went from my 329 at Toronto to a 309 at Boston. You know, he got me on the podium in just five months. And, well, I haven't considered for a second ever hiring my coach since then. I just can't compete at this level with it without his guidance a coach is so totally so, essential so for what me. maybe i maybe some people can do it i can't i agree with uh, the necessity of a coach but for you why is the coach important what's the most important thing the top couple things that the coach does that you wouldn't do for yourself well two things i guess one thing is he prescribes the right workouts normally i wouldn't just go out and do a whole bunch of garbage miles i might train for a marathon by working up 50 60 70 80 maybe even 90 miles in a week and but you know they're all junk miles and uh with uh, my coach i rarely get much over 50 miles in a week but a lot of them are really really tough miles like today for instance i'm had to drag myself uh to the phone a little bit after after that run. And the second thing is is accountability. I'll get up and start running. I say, oh boy, I feel terrible. There's just no way I can do this today. And if I were on my own, I probably would just bag the whole workout. But when the coach says, this is what you do today, then by golly, I'm going to do it. I'd rather die than write my coach and say, hey, coach, I couldn't do it. So he does the right workouts. And if you're like me, you really want your coach to like what you're doing and not be disappointed in you. So, so accountability things, and, and the right workouts. Yeah. One of the things I found as well as those two things is that he keeps me from doing stupid stuff. Right. So if, for example, if I have a really bad workout, uh, my tendency is to say, okay, I'm going to hit it twice as hard tomorrow to make up for it. Right. Mm-hmm. And he'll keep me from doing that. He'll say, Oh no, that was a bad workout. Let's move on. I'm my own worst en- enemy when it comes to that kind of stuff. Right. I'm a, I'm a much too tough of a critic. So he keeps me from doing stupid stuff. So, well, my coach seems to know even better than I do what I'm capable of. I just can't believe when I look at some of these workouts, I say, there's no way I can do that. And it ends up to being just about the limit of what I actually could do. He just does that week mm. after week. I just don't know how he does it. Yep. Nope. They know you better than know yourself, right? Mm-hmm. I was only number one. Uh, <laughs> I got number two and number three to go, I guess. Keep going. We touched on it a little earlier. The, the second of the three things I've learned since returning is trying to outdo yourself, not others. I mean, that's the way to, to really have a lot of fun and uh, improve year over year is to beat that guy from last year. And number three, well, this probably comes easy to most people, but building a community of friends uh, who share your interests has, has just been such a great joy to me. I mean, a number of people I know that I wouldn't know without running, and it's just wonderful. Absolutely. So that's one, yeah, two, that's and three. Good. good, good. All right. So uh, I'm going to move you towards the exit. What's the what's the future hold for you, Gene? You got the 100 to 105 finish at Boston in your sights? Oh, yeah. It was funny. People would say, what's your ultimate running goal? I would say it would be to win the 120 to 124 age group at Boston. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so uh, actually, they only go to 80 plus, I think. I'm not sure. I think at some point they, so they don't really have ex- official groups. Within the last five years, maybe they had to extend them because they topped oh, okay. out at 80. They had to extend them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good. So I'll keep so what doing it as... What else, you got, what else have on? I got? Oh, I've got, uh, well, I'm still 70, so I've got uh, a whole pile of uh, national championships and age group records I'm hoping to uh, go after this year. And I've got that pesky marathon age group record. I'm going to give it a go in uh, December at Jacksonville. So, uh, And if I fail, then I'll be able to train all winter for the spring marathon next year. What I'd really like you. to do some year is to go back to Boston as my A race. The last couple of years, it's been my B race. Unfortunately, I was able to win my age group anyway. This year, I did it the week after Rotterdam. Last year, I ran Boston the week after running a 100K race. See what I could do at Boston on fresh legs. It's tough to have Boston as your A race because the weather is always so variable, right? We had this year, which was an outlier, but most years, you're hitting 
uh, some pretty warm weather for us East Coasters. So yeah, it's hard three, to race. Yeah. Yeah, two previous so, all years. Right. All right. I'm going to let you go. Thanks for your time today. I appreciate the words of wisdom and the advice. Mm-hmm. Well, I can't really help speak to those whose performance is beginning to decline because I'm still improving. But if I had to have a crystal ball, when that starts happening, I'll have to give up on trying to beat the old me. And I suppose my attention will turn to finding the most enjoyable races out there. So that's kind of yeah. what I foresee happening in the future. Great. Sounds like you have, All right. well, you have a lot of miles. Enjoying both talking to you. Yeah, sounds like you have a lot of miles left in Eugene. We'll be keeping an eye on you. All right? Sure hope so. Okay. All right. Cheers. Great. Bye now. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Running into the sunset. I've been running seriously, participating in endurance sports for over 20 years now. I've been able to observe myself age and the way it impacts my performance and my enjoyment. And I've been able to observe others as well. Some who seem to deny aging and some who seem to collapse into it. What has been my experience? What can we learn? How can we squeeze the life from what we wake up with every day? Because waking up is is a gift. Why not learn how to enjoy it and carpe the diem? Some people will tell you that getting old is all in your head, or that you are only as old as you feel, or as old as you act. And there are some kernels of truth in these statements. First, you never wake up and think, That's it. Today I'm old. It sneaks up on you. It's a gradual thing, and you don't notice the change. You don't feel different. But then you look in the mirror, and you see that you have aged. It's all relative. When you were 20, you thought 30 was old. When you were 30, you thought 40 was the end of the line. And when you get to 50, you think, hey, 50 is pretty good. 60 is going to be really old. And so it goes. My point here is that there is a mental aspect to it. I can't tell you how much is mental and how much is physical. I think my race paces have dropped by about a minute a mile in the last 10 years, but maybe that's just because I believe they should. You will often hear people cite the statistic that the average life expectancy used to be in the 30s or less. And the impression is that before modern civilization, people just didn't live that long. Like, aging is a new thing. And that's not the case. There is a problem with those statistics. The average life expectancy is heavily weighted by the fact that many people never made it out of childhood. And that skews the average. If you made it out of childhood, you had a good chance of living to 50 or 60 or 70. So old age, it would seem, is old news. What I have found with my training and racing is that the loss of performance is nonlinear. It's not a nice smooth curve that you can graph that diminishes slowly over time. You lose your performance ability in chunks. And I found that it is really a series of peaks and valleys, with each valley being lower and each peak being lower. And you go through years of steady performance and training, and then you hit a setback, usually an injury. And you never recover to the same peak you were at before that. The aging process takes big chunks out of performance during these periods of stopping and recovering. You never climb completely out of the valleys. I think a relatively new phenomenon is... Lifelong athletes. People used to compete when they were young and in school, and then they leave it behind. It's only the last few decades that amateur athletes can continue training into their silver years. We haven't adapted quite to this dynamic as a society yet. Another interesting trend that I see is people entering the endurance lifestyle later in life. And whether this is in their 30s, 40s, or 50s, or like in Gene's case, 60s, these folks start fresh later in life. The difference being that in today's world, they can find a cadre of serious athletes for support at any age. There's an existing 
support system for all age groups. From the people I've interacted with who have come to it later in the life, there are really two types. There are those who are athletes when they were younger and are returning after a long absence. And there are those who are coming into it fresh, never having been an athlete. And those who were athletes tend to improve faster. They have less self-doubt and higher personal expectations. In a sense, they know what they're capable of. They know what to expect. They have a leg up. And since they have rested their bodies for a couple decades, they don't have the wear and tear of the lifelong athletes. And those who start fresh seem to have a different assumption. They're happy to be doing it. They only slowly come to learn that they have more potential. They have to discover it. One disturbing trend for me is that I do see more sudden death in my cadre of serious amateur athletes. And these are the hardcore guys, and they're mostly guys that just drop dead in their 50s and 60s. And it's usually a heart problem. And all I can really guess from this is that being in great shape isn't any kind of cure-all defense against cardiovascular disease. Which leads us to another difference of the aging athlete. It's not just about the act of training or showing up to that race. As you get older, there's more maintenance required if you want to stay healthy and active. You need to develop good habits and nutrition. You can't get away with the abuse that you used to. I mean, it's specific to the individual, but many of us lower our volume and our intensity to avoid injury as we get older. You can train smarter and get most of the performance you used to get. You can get 80% of your performance on a well-disciplined 40-mile week versus a 60 or a 70 or an 80-mile week you could pull off in your earlier years. So you make reasoned, (laughs) proactive trade-offs to stay in the game. And at some point, something fails, and you end up on the bike or in the pool, but you find ways to get your fix without getting completely out of the game. One of the positive things you get with age is experience. And you can't buy experience. You can only gain experience from living it. And this may not replace the physical ability, but it smooths that over with a certain sanguinity. Aging isn't so bad. There are always more things left to do than those that have already been done. As Dave McGilvery, who still, by the way, runs his age on his birthday every year, says, your favorite adventure is your next one. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Okay, my friends, you have set an impressive age group record while progressing to the end of episode 4-387. Nice work. Two of my training buddies from my age group that you've heard me talk about before had great days at the Vermont City Marathon over the weekend. They got good weather, really good weather, overcast and cool. And my buddy Brian, who uh, ran Bay State Marathon with me in the fall, he ran a 335, he was right behind me. He knocked out a 329 and change. And Tim, my other buddy, powered through to a 316. So now I'm officially the slow guy again. Watched a great documentary on Netflix I wanted to clue you in on. It's called Chuck Norris versus Communism. <laughs> and it's about the impact of bootleg videos on Romanians in the 1980s and early 90s. And it's been out for a while, but I hadn't seen it yet. It's really well done. You'll like it, especially if you lived through that era. I have a big weekend coming up. If I can pull it off, I'm going to run 35 on Saturday and another 20 on Sunday. Yikes. I had a good week, got all my runs in, had a business trip out to Salt Lake, and I used that to practice more of this miserable, exhausted running that I'm supposed to be practicing. (laughs) So added a little jet lag into the mix. Ran six miles Tuesday morning, no problem, but then flew out to Salt Lake Late Tuesday night, got up, cracked it on Wednesday in Salt Lake and got, uh, you know, maybe four or five hours of sleep. Went out exploring on Wednesday morning from the hotel. And I was originally 
looking out the window and aiming for those mountains. I figured I might be able to make it to the mountains. But I, on my way in that direction, I ran by a canal or maybe a river. Don't know. But it had a wide path, so I turned onto that for the bulk of my run. And I ended up getting around 9 miles, not my 10, because partly I was running short on time and partly because I ran into a fence. Yeah, the canal trail literally, and I think I'm using that word right, literally ran into a chain link fence. And I think it was because there was a school nearby and they were trying to keep the kids out. But there was a kid-sized hole at the bottom of the fence. You know how they, with a chain-link fence, they'll bend up the corner of the chain-link and squeeze under? But I made the decision at that point (laughs) that I wasn't going to wriggle under a fence in the suburbs of West Jordan, Utah, to get that last mile in. Anyhow, it was a nice run. The trail was wide, crushed rock, flat, ran behind people's houses, a whole line of quarter-acre lots back-to-back. And it's always interesting to look into people's backyards in a voyeuristic kind of way. Some people have gardens. Some people have chickens. Some people have scary dogs. And the river or the canal itself was what I would what I would call gray water. And I don't know if that is just the color of the water in Salt Lake or if this is some sort of legacy drainage system. It didn't smell bad. But it didn't make me want to go in for a swim, either. And since it's spring, the canal was full of wild ducks and their little gangs of ducklings. And I was subjected to maximum duckling cuteness the whole time as they scurried and paddled away from this strange lumbering thing on the trail in the slanting morning sun. And I even passed a couple joggers. Joggers! I can say that. Joggers on the trail. On my way back, when I left the trail, I had to navigate the now bustling streets of the suburbs of suburbia for a couple miles back to my hotel. And at one point, I was coming up to an intersection. I'm pretty burnt at this point. (laughs) Sun's coming up. I'm out of water. And I saw a crossing guard. So these, what's a crossing guard? These are the community volunteers who are posted at busy intersections near schools with a reflective vest, a handheld stop placard, and a righteous attitude. And as I was lumbering up the sidewalk towards the intersection, I caught the vigilant woman's eyes, and I gave her the conspiratorial nod, and she moved out and stopped traffic for me. And I tipped my hat and said, You are the best. So the world's a good place filled with good people. And I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. All right, here we go. Let's see if Buddy wakes up and comes over to bother me. That's his special superpower, if you hadn't noticed. When you listen to me and you hear the barking in the background, that's Buddy. He just wants to be heard. He just wants to be heard. It's a long day. Nope, here comes the dog. See, I told you. For these runs... Oh, I gotta let him out. Pause. Pause. 